Uh, good morning from me. My name's Peter. I'm uh, one of the pastors here. Um, just want to say uh, and honour Pete Milliken. He served really well and ministered well to us over the last uh, five weeks or so. Uh, and I, uh, I just encourage you, if he's uh, served you well and, and the Lord's spoken to you through him, uh, I just encourage you to go and thank him for it. Uh, it is a, uh, there is a weightiness to, uh, to preaching. And I said to him at the start, I said, I'm really looking forward to being out of the saddle. Uh, for a while because I had a pretty long stretch and uh, I said to him I'm looking forward to you ministering to me and uh, and he did and uh, and so uh, I appreciate that and uh, you uh, you should go and let him know if uh, if he served you well and ministered well to you. Back at uh, the beginning of uh, February we became Restoration Church in fact uh, the 6th of February was our first Sunday with a new name in a new building. It was a crazy time for us there was so much stuff going on we had planned on kind of kicking into uh, some stuff about who we are as a restoration church, but there was so much stuff going on, we just went, we just need to get into scripture for a while. So we dived into John 6 and spent about six months on it. Not kidding, but it didn't, we did just do John 6 basically for about 10 weeks, and uh, it was good stuff, at least I enjoyed it. Um, and I want to let you know where we're headed over the next month. Uh, we're going to do a couple of weeks on um, some underlying kind of theological threads that drive us as a church here. Uh, today, we're going to be doing story, and next week we're going to be doing uh, personal, or the personal. Um, and next week is uh, Mother's Day, lads, community service announcement. It's Mother's Day, next Sunday, all right? Um, the week after that, on the 15th of May, we're actually going to be doing a uh, standalone message. I'm going to be doing a standalone message on anxiety with a Sunday workshop on the following Sunday night. So it seems to me and it seems to us that there's a lot more anxiety going around at the moment. Um, people who don't tend to struggle with it are struggling a bit with it. And those who tend to be a little bit, they lean in that direction, are having bigger struggles with it. And the reality is, folks, that we are uh, a people who uh, have the Prince of Peace, don't we? And that doesn't mean that we don't have anxiety, but uh, there's something about what we have that ought to make us different uh, from the people around us, you know. And I don't say that in a pressured way, but we ought to stand out from the world if you have the Prince of Peace. Um, so we're just going to get down into the details of what that means for anxiety, because uh, we actually have something to offer the world. An anxious, fearful world needs what we have. Amen? So we just need to get a little bit better on on some of that stuff, uh, and then the week after that, uh, we're going to be back into John for a while. So let me kick in today, I'm going to preach for a bit, and then um, we're going to kick into, a, I'm going to let you know about a few things that are going on in the place. Stories. We live for stories. We read stories, fiction, biographies, comics, we watch movies, uh, we go to the theatre, we watch bios and docos, we people watch. Like some of us do. I like people watching. Does anyone else want to confess to it? It's different to stalking. <laughs> you can put your hand up. People watching. Something I love doing. I used to sit on the edge of the oval back when I was teaching. Uh, sometimes I'd just commentate on what actually might be happening in the middle of the oval and usually be a bunch of kids around and they kind of join in. Mondays I often go to Rosie's Cafe at Grand Central. Anyone a Rosie's fan? Okay, Rosie's sucks. Basically, that's, no, they don't, they don't. They're, they're very nice, but I'll go there early on a Monday morning, uh, soon after they open. It's just kind of my day off kind of ritual, and I sit there, and sometimes I, 
I people watch. And I, I look at the expressions on people's faces and where they're going and I, I think, I wonder what's going on for them. And it's really a question about what's the story about where that person is up to at this point in time. Sometimes I even end up praying for them. We, uh, we tell funny stories and funny stories are called? Excellent, great, great. Funny stories are called jokes and Australians are really well known for telling a yarn, right? A funny yarn. Um, and not only that, we actually talk about our lives in story format. You know, wh- one of the things that happens over and over and over in many marriages is the husband and the wife, and it could be housemates, you get home, and what do you ask? What's the question? How was your day? And it's not a question about the forensic kind of scientific details of the day. It's really an invitation to tell me the story. Tell me the story about what happened to you in your day. What was it like for you? Anyone recognise uh, this guy? Probably not. If you're in education, you know about Piaget, right? Because Piaget was a Swiss psychologist born in 1896 and he died in 1980. He was the first to do a detailed, systematic study into the way children learn. And here's bas- one of the key things that Piaget actually found out. He, uh, he found out, um, according to Encyclopedia Britannica, Piaget saw the child as constantly creating and recreating his own model of reality. So what he's saying is that people, uh, children in particular, look at the world, they gather the data and then they turn it into a system. Um, they turn it into a framework for understanding it. The reality is that we are not computers that store random pieces of information. As humans, we take what we see... We take what we find out, we take what we know and then we put it together into a framework that makes sense of it. Here's another way of putting it. We see things and we observe things and we make a story out of it. That's what we do. We make a story about it. And this is something that um, Paul Tripp goes into a little bit too. This is out of his book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. He says, people are meaning makers. We have been created with the marvellous ability to think. We are always organising, interpreting and explaining what is going on inside us and around us. We all think, though some of us do it better than others. We do not live life based on the bare facts of our existence. We live our lives according to our interpretation of those facts. This is what we do all the time. We are meaning makers. We create stories out of things. And this is something that the... uh, the uh, philosophical um, approach of postmodernism actually identified really, really clearly that everyone has an individual take on what's actually going on around them. And you better believe this is going on in spades at the moment, isn't it? There are individual takes going on everywhere. Everyone's got an opinion. Everyone kind of gets to look at the same data, but people are coming up with different takes on what that data means. They've got a different story about what's actually happening. You know, there's people at the moment going on and on about conspiracies, the conspiracies that are going on behind things. Um, And and what what people are are doing when they criticise what they can see is they're saying, I don't like the way that you've assembled the facts. I don't like the story that you're telling. There's a, there's a truer story in their view. And so they disagree with the way that other people are interpreting and seeing things. But where postmodernism 
and our culture fall down is that they don't believe in an overarching meta story. There just isn't one. There's no grand narrative. And this is really, really significant. The reason why this is significant is because you can't get a meta-narrative or a grand narrative from atheistic evolution because at the core of it, it's just random mutation. That's all it is. You can't get it. And here's the thing that people don't often want to actually be honest about, and honest is probably not a very good word, they don't want to be straight about, and it's this, you can't get purpose when the largest story has no purpose. I've... um, I've gone to a bunch of counselling conferences over the years and one of the things that I've heard at uh, counselling conferences sometimes um, is people talking about helping a counsellee to find their own purpose and their own meaning because they know that having purpose and meaning is critical to living a balanced life. But I want to say this to you, if naturalism is true and God doesn't exist and random evolution is the way that things got here, it's irrelevant what you think your purpose is because there isn't any. When you don't have, let me tell you what you get when you don't have an overarching narrative that all the smaller pieces of narrative in people's lives fit into, you know what you get? You get a power struggle. That's what you get. You have a power struggle and you know who wins? The loudest and the most powerful. That's who wins. And so when you look around you, everyone's making a story up and by and large people don't believe in a grand narrative that makes sense of the fragments, the bits and pieces and so it's about loud opinions and powerful people. And I want to say to you this morning... The reality is this, it's the grand narrative of the universe and history which gives meaning and purpose to our individual lives. So, we, uh, we tell stories. We love to hear stories and we make sense of the world by stories. It begs the question, why stories? Well, there's lots of reasons for this. I'm going to give you two. A primary reason and a secondary reason. Here's the primary one. The whole of history is one big story. That's what it is. The secondary reason is that story is the best way to get to know someone. Let me kick off with the primary. We're going to get to a little bit more of this uh, in a moment. The whole of history is one big story of who God is and what he's up to. (laughs) That's what it is. Uh, That's the way it is. Whether you agree or believe it, this is the case. And second... In a secondary sense, story is the best way to get to know someone. You do this all the time. You know, when you communicate at your best, you tell stories and you listen to stories. I could tell you a bunch of scientific facts about me, all right? Six foot three, don't have much hair left on my head. I have two legs and two arms. I drove in a car to church this morning. But, you know, I could just give you those facts and you wouldn't learn that much about me. But I could tell you a story. I could tell you a bunch of stories. And if I told you a story, you'd really 
get to know me because what a story does is a story pulls you in. A story is about getting to know someone, getting, no, getting to know a person. I remember um, when the Joker movie came out uh, a few years ago. Uh, anyone seen the Joker movie? It's a pretty kind of get-in-your-head kind of movie. So I remember talking to Jaden when he was, he was still with us and he's going, oh, I don't know whether I'm going to go and see it. And I said, I'm going to see it, but I just need to go on a day when I'm feeling okay because it's a, it's a bit psycho, the movie. So I, I, a Monday came and I thought, I'm going to see the Joker, all right? So I go and see this psychotic kind of dude in this movie, loved the movie and just came out thinking that everyone sitting on a chair in Grand Central is going to stab me. <laughs> all right? And I'm looking at him just going, did he just look sideways at me then? Uh, why am I doing that? Because it was a story about a character and the story pulled me in and I was in it. And even when I came out of the movie, I was still kind of in the story. That's what a good story does. It doesn't make you hyper-vigilant or not, but a good story pulls you in. It helps you to get to know someone. Uh, and this is one of the reasons why story is central for us in terms of the way that we do things at Restoration Church. So think for a minute uh, with me about all of the different ways that God could have told you about himself. There's lots of ways, right? Um, God could have given you a bunch of bullet points, right? 35,000 bullet points. He could have just handed you a psychology textbook. He could have, literally, he could have just done a painting and just gone, that's what I'm like, you've got to work it out now. Or uh, some of you would really dig this, um, a maths formula. <laughs> he could give you a maths formula or a lecture followed by a test. He could have given you that, but he doesn't, right? What God does is he tells you a story. Why? Because stories are the best way to get to know a person. And like I said earlier, God is not a cosmic machine. God is a person. He's intensely personal. He exists in three persons. And so a story makes all kinds of sense. All kinds of sense. But he didn't just write his story so that you would know who he is. He wrote his story so you would know who you are as well. And so what I want to do for a few moments today is just have a look at the opening section of God's story. It starts classically like most stories do. Genesis 1 verse 1, the very opening sentence of Scripture is this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's story straight up, right? In the beginning. It, it has the, uh, the feel of an author sitting down in front of a a blank Microsoft Word document about to type, an artist sitting down in front of a, uh, a canvas about to start painting, a, a blank canvas. And, and I'll tell you something, from the very opening sentence of God's story, we learn something about who's in the center of this story. Who is it? It's God. It's God. He is the one who this story is about. And as we read through the first chapter of, uh, of Genesis, we get this kind of Hollywood-style God who just creates things with his words. And God said, and it was so, and it was good. It's the refrain that occurs over and over and over in Genesis chapter 1. And then the really cool thing, if, if you've noticed in Genesis 1 and 2, is that 
the whole creation story gets reloaded again in Genesis 2. And, and it goes from this Hollywood kind of at a distance, great God who's just able to pull some crazy things off. But this time in chapter 2, God's much closer. It says that he creates humanity from the soil. You know, that the Hebrew idea behind God breathing the breath of life into Adam is the idea of a kiss. When he gets that close, right, he plants a garden and he puts Adam in it. He creates Eve and he brings her to Adam. You know, in the first two chapters of the Bible, we learn so much about who God is. He's distant. Well, I shouldn't say distant. He's big and he does amazing things, but he's also incredibly close. One of the key things we learn about humanity is uh, something that Calvin observed, and it's this. You just advance that for me, Riley. Here's what we learn. The proper condition of creatures is to stay near God. The proper condition of creatures is to stay near God. The proper condition of toasters is to toast bread the proper condition of dishwashers is to wash dishes what's normative for a properly functioning dishwasher is to wash dishes what's normative for a properly functioning toaster is to toast bread what's normal for humanity is to stay near god that's what we learn about us then, before the story is three chapters old, all this changes and it takes a tragic turn. This is not unlike stories that we love to go and watch. They have a tragic turn in them and there's something that's at risk. There's someone who is opposed to the good story that's going on. And so we get to Genesis 3, only the third chapter in the story. There's 66 books. And three books in. Let's read it. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. He didn't say the next thing, but she said he did, which means that she thinks that God's holding out on him. Uh, Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Let me tell you some of the things that we learn from this part of the story. We learn, uh, we learn it about the story. This is... This is this, This section of Scripture has got the makings, the DNA that's going to unfold through the rest of the story. There's four. Four things I want you to notice. Here's the first one. There's an adversary in the story. There's an adversary in it. I mean, the way that we would put it if we were talking about a movie is we'd talk about the bad guy. There's a bad guy. There's a bad person in the story. There's an opponent. And he is intent on taking the whole thing down. And that's true. That's the story that you're living in. You actually have an opponent. And he wants to take you down. 
and he wants to wreck God's story. You know, there is more going on in the world than meets the eye. Conspiracy theorists have it partially right, right? Because the biggest issue is not the government or the Ashkenazi Jews. The biggest issue is the devil. That's the biggest issue. He's the one that's kicking around doing stuff. You better believe there's more going on in your family than meets the eye. There's more going on at your workplace than meets the eye. You know, what's the main strategy of the adversary in the story? It's very, very simple. It's very simple. We are suckers and we have fallen for it for many, many years. Just get the humans to curve in on themselves. That's all you have to do. And the rest is simple. And I want to say something uh, in particular to the young men. You can, you can be 30 and count yourself young. You can include yourself here or 40 or 48. 48 young. There is a water fight. You know, we, we see the images, don't we, of, uh, of the war zone in Ukraine. You better believe this whole world is a war zone. And there is a water fight. There's a battle to wage. And young men in particular can get really good at waging battles on a screen that don't mean anything ultimately. And God would call you to wage battles, the critical battles. God would call you to the front lines. Where is that? Prayer. <laughs> Probably disappointed by hearing that. Here's one for you. Planting churches. You want to see spiritual warfare? Go and start a church. On mission. Here's the thing. You want to see some spiritual warfare? Just start doing something for Jesus. Start annexing more of the devil's territory. Push him back and he'll come, your, he'll come for you. All right? And you'll have a battle on your hands. And while physical battles and armies are important, this is a much, much more important battle. Second thing. There's an adversary in the story. Second thing is this. We want to be the hero of this story. <laughs> this still goes on today. And it comes in two different forms. This is pride, right? This is classic pride that we see in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve have just gone, we don't want you to be in the center anymore, God. We want to be in the center of this story. We want to be the one with our name in lights. We ultimately want this story to be about us. You ever felt that? Now, you might be an introvert, but it's still true of introverts <laughs> as much as extroverts. Now, the disturbing thing for many of us is this, um, and I'm, I apologize if this is the first time you've heard it, but God is not running auditions for the hero part in his story. He's, just, he's not doing it, all right? That's Lot's film. So, so the idea, like according to Genesis 3, that you just want to step out of God's story and be the central character, it's not going to happen. It's never going to happen. Because uh, if you're God, by definition, you're in the center of the story. <laughs> that's how it works. And the other part I think that's worth noting about this section in Genesis chapter 3 is not just that Adam and Eve want to be in the center of the story and they want to be the hero, but they actually want the story to go the way that they want it to go. 
It's another way of saying they wanted to be in the centre and we do a similar thing too. So here's, here's a question for you and this is a hard question. What do you do when God's story that you're, the part that you're involved in, what happens? What do you do when God's story heads in a direction you don't really want to go? What do you do? Here's, here's another way of putting it. When have you abandoned God's story because it didn't go where you wanted it to go? We've all done it, right? God's been leaning in a particular direction. Or something comes our way and we need to walk through it. We just go, yeah, you know what, at this point I'm out. Just tapping out. (laughs) Um, I don't want to do that anymore. I think it should be a different way. And so I'll just tap out. I'll make the story about me and I'll make it go the way that I want it to go. If if you've had a moment like that, and just about everyone who loves Jesus has had one of those moments, uh, you have a lot of good company uh, from biblical characters in the scriptures, right? Um. Because this is true, right? God has a way of taking our story to places that we don't want to go. Does anyone give an amen to that one? It's like if I had my choice, we wouldn't go there. And the question really is, can you live with that? Or do you tap out at that point in time? Third thing I want to look at this morning that we see in uh, the story of uh, Genesis 3 is uh, things got jumbled in God's story. You know, there's crazy movies out there. I don't know which one you'd pick, but there's so many movies where the plot line kind of rests on the fact that it, it unpacks this whole big story for you over the course of the movie, and you get just near the end and realize the whole thing wasn't what you thought it was. It's kind of like Inception. Uh, the Joker movie was like that. I got to the end and I go, I don't even know. I don't even know what's true anymore, right? It's all kind of upside down and there's heaps of these kind of movies around you thought it was true but at the end it wasn't and this is a bit like the story that you've been dropped into the story that you've been dropped into things are upside down and they're jumbled and they're not always always as they seem and you can see the seeds of it in Genesis chapter 3 you see God always promised that Adam and Eve sorry I should say not promised God always had a commitment to growing Adam and Eve in wisdom so what does is, what is the devil do? He says, oh, you'll be wise if you don't do what God says. So he's kind of playing on something that's true by twisting it. And, and what you've got there is you've got something that kind of looks good, but it's actually not good. And that's the world that we live in now. That's the story that we're in. That there's things that look good, but they're actually not good. <laughs> and there's things that don't look good, and they're actually good very confusing it's the nature of the world you live in you can't always trust what you see and you can't always trust what you think this very thing pops up in the book of uh, Isaiah Isaiah 520 woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter it's a confusing world sometimes but like the last point that I made, God's not left us without hope. God's revealed the truth in the Scriptures, and the Scriptures tell us what's good and what's evil, and we ought to pay attention to them. If we're clued up, we will be able to see what is really good 
even though it may not look attractive, and we'll be able to see what is really evil, even though it may look good. There is help for us. Here's the last thing I think uh, I just want to add about, it's probably not directly out of Genesis 3, but it's a flow-on effect uh, from Genesis 3 for us. You know, all of us have joined the story partway through. And I wonder, have you ever, you ever walked up to a group of people and someone's halfway through telling a story? You know, and like, what do you do? Like, if you're smart, you just don't open your mouth, right? Because you don't know what's going on in the group. And so you just keep your mouth closed and you keep listening, 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 trying to catch up on where the story is up for you, up to you. You watch for cues, you observe um, faces, you listen to what people say in an effort to get up to speed. Um, and, and probably all of us at some point in time have been in a group where someone's come in and joined the group halfway through a story and they didn't do that. Have you had that? And they just start talking and you kind of go, you don't say it out loud most of the time, but it's like, you seem to shut up and just listen to what other people are saying before you open your mouth, right? Why? Because good speaking always follows good listening. If you don't listen well, you don't know how to speak well. That's how it works. That's why Scripture talks about being slow to speak. When you were born, when all of us in this room were born, we were dropped right in the middle of a story that's halfway through. A heck of a lot of water has gone under the bridge in this story since the world was created. But the good news is that God has seen to it that you have enough information to get caught up on where the story's up to. You just have to listen. You are the hero, but God's brought you along to be an extra in his story at this time, in this place. You need to play your part well. But to do that, you'll need to know what's going on before. You'll need to listen well. And that's why for us at Restoration Church here, the whole of God's story is really, really important for us knowing how to operate now. Because we know what's going on. God's helped us with knowing what's going on so we know how to operate in the present. Now, you could be forgiven uh, when you're thinking about God's story. You could be forgiven for thinking about God's story um, is a bit of a mess, because <laughs> it is. And we've just read Genesis 3, you might go, oh, that's, that's pretty bad, what Adam and Eve did, but maybe it wasn't that bad. But you go to the very next chapter, and you have uh, family conflict. Uh, you had a bit of family conflict in uh, Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve are kind of ducking and weaving. But Genesis 4, uh, one of their sons kills one of their other sons. Um, that's awkward, isn't it? We just think about that. It's like, man, you might have conflict in your family, but no one's dead yet, all right? So you're still doing better than Adam and Eve at this point in time. But do you see what's going on? And then it just descends into more and more trouble and chaos, such that by the time we get to chapter 6, right, we are only at chapter 6 in the whole of the Bible. And this is what it says in chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, listen to this, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. <laughs> only evil continually. Evil death has spread and it's had its full effect. Now, what does God do about this ultimately? 
What does he do? What, what does the author of the story do when the characters in the story walk away from him? You know what he does? He writes himself in to the story. That's what he does. You see this at the, uh, toward the end of Genesis chapter 3. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. One day someone's going to come along, born of a woman. He's going to crush the head of the serpent and he'll get bruised by it. And if you saw a fight and one guy's head was crushed and the other one's heel was bruised, the one with the crushed head lost. (laughs) Okay? It's pretty straightforward. Tim Keller puts it this way. When a Russian cosmonaut returned from space and reported that he had not found God, C.S. Lewis responded that this was like Hamlet going into the attic of his castle looking for Shakespeare. If there is a God, he wouldn't be another object in the universe that could be put in a lab and analysed with empirical methods, scientific methods. He would relate to us the way a playwright relates to the characters in his play. We, the characters, might be able to know quite a lot about the playwright, but only to the degree the author chooses to put information about himself in the play. The question is, how much information has the, uh, the playwright, the author of this story, put uh, about himself into the, into the story? Well, massive. John 1 verse 14. So the word... Jesus, eternally existing with the Father, creator of the world, became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see that? He takes on human flesh and he takes part in the story. And he goes to the cross in the most heroic act anyone has ever seen. An innocent man in the place of the guilty. The only one with whom acceptance matters was rejected. A healthy one for the sick. Life itself, as John says in his gospel, for the spiritually dead. And this is the act. This is the person through which we are to read the rest of the scriptures. It's amazing. It's stunning. It locks in once for all that God is the hero of this story. Here's a, a flowchart that shows you the, um, the story arc. It started with creation. Humanity fell. We just looked at that this morning. Jesus came and he died on a cross to redeem humanity. And then there's this down payment of uh, the goodness of what Jesus has done on the cross, but we don't have it in its fullness yet. And then there's a final restoration coming when Jesus comes back. There's a story in John chapter 6 where Jesus feeds the 5,000. And uh, the 5,000 men, probably over 20,000 people when you include women and children. And Jesus knew what he was going to do, but he says to Philip, he says, where are we going to get enough food to feed all of these people? And um, Philip can't work it out. And one of the disciples comes along and says, we've got this young boy here. He's got five loaves and two, two fish, but that's not enough for everyone. And what Jesus does in the end is Jesus does this miracle and he feeds all of the people and there's 12 basketfuls left over. It's an amazing story. And I wonder, 
at this point in time, which character, if you could be one of the characters in the story, which one would you be? Let me give you your options. <laughs> you could be Jesus, but we all know you're not supposed to want to be him. <laughs> all right, we've been talking about that today. The disciples, that would be cool, all right? You got to hand out all this food. You, you were like right on the front edge of this miracle that was happening. You could be one of the people in the crowd. You could receive it and eat of it. Or you could be the boy. I wonder what you'd pick. Well, I want to be the boy. Do you know, this, uh, this is the only miracle that's recorded in all four gospel accounts and none of the other gospel writers say the, the five loaves and two fish came from a boy. He doesn't become like a senior pastor of an early church. His name doesn't end up in lights. He doesn't have a monument. You know what happens? Everyone forgets about him. But he turned up and he gave what he had in his hands and Jesus did a miracle with it. He, he didn't know what Jesus was going to do. I mean, it would have been disappointing, right? But Jesus could have just eaten it. <laughs> right? Five loaves and two fish, he could have just eaten it. He didn't know what Jesus was going to do. But he turned up and he handed over what he had in his hands. Do you know something? He was an extra in God's story. And I want to say to you this morning, could you be the boy? Or would you be too bothered by the fact that you're not in the center? Would you be too bothered by the fact that you're not Jesus? Do you know, there is no more satisfying thing in God's story, let me do this, than having a, a walk-on part, you do your little bit, and then you walk off. I remember talking with Jaden about this with John the Baptist. I said to him, John the Baptist, he gets up and he says his piece and then he sits down. That's what he does. He sits down. Does that sound good to you? You know, it may be that the biggest hurdle to our faith is embracing the servant role of experiencing God's redemption in God's story rather than abandoning God because we don't like the way that our story's headed. Let me finish on this. God's story is not at risk. There is something that's at risk, but it's not the storyline. You know the old thing is like, people go, I've, I've read the last few pages of the book and I know where this is going. It's like we have read the last few pages of the book, just about all of us. And Revelation 21 says that we started at the beginning in a garden, we're going to end up at a garden again. You can be a punk, you can abandon God's story, but do you know what? It's not going to stop it. So if, if God's story is not at risk by what I do with it, what's at risk? People. That's what's at risk. You, you're at risk. <laughs> and people who God would use you to reach are the ones who are at risk. If we refuse to be part of the story because we want it to be about us or we want to be the hero, we will be the ones that miss out. You hear me? We will be the ones that miss Jesus. 
we will be the ones that miss redemption. I'm just going to pray, and then I'm going to give you some updates about some stuff that's happening in the church. I wonder if you stand with me. God, you have not called us to be significant in our own right, but you have called us to many, many significant things. And we're here now, and we're all varying ages here, and uh, even the youngest of us are not going to be here very long. And you have things for us to do. You have good works planned for us to do. There's a, there's a walk-on, extra kind of part that we're called to play and um, we want to say that we maybe some of us want to say that we're, we're willing got to pray for anyone who's a little hesitant especially God if the, the place where they're in is a very difficult dark one really just this morning is going, I do not like where this story is going. So Jesus, I I just pray for them. I pray that you would help them to trust you really deeply. I I want you to notice their trust. It's it's 24 karat gold probably. And uh, stay close to them. Amen.